Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and we are back and live from Star Wars Celebration Chicago. This is our conversation with Mr. Rob Bredo, who is the head of Industrial Light and Magic, as well as the author of the just-released book, Making Solo a Star Wars Story. This was such an incredible opportunity and conversation, and I'm just so grateful to have gotten the chance to talk to him. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 34, Rob Bredo. Today on Talking Bay 94, we are talking to Mr. Rob Bredo, who is the head of ILM, SVP, Executive Creative Director, Industrial Light and Magic. Mr. Bredo, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. There's a few Star Wars fans here. Are they here for, for like, <laughs> something? Or? Yeah, it's funny. Walking into the lobby, there were three droids that, <laughs> that greeted us. And my daughter goes, are those real droids? I'm like, as real as yeah. droids are? Yes, yeah, those, are, those are real. what you're going to get. Yeah. <laughs> I was telling you right before we started, I literally, we walked onto the show floor and I was like, we're going straight to the Abrams booth and we're getting a copy of this because I just went and sat over here for the past hour and, and thumbed through it. And this book, The um, Making of Solo, Industrial Light and Magic Presents, is incredible. It is so great. Thank you so much. Uh, it was super fun to make the movie and then get to document the process that went into the film and uh, try to do it in a very first person and authentic way that was really kind of my experience from beginning to end and everybody just was real excited about this i mean all the way from kathy kennedy to michael Siegelin and eric clifford at uh, at abrams they really got excited about this vision for the project so it was really fun to build i love it i mean anyone that's listened to the show before knows how much i love making up star wars books it's my favorite <laughs> type of book and you go back and especially for the new disney Disney movies, there's really not something like this, right? There's not a making of book. There's some incredible art of books that Phil Shosek has done, but nothing that has been the onset experience. And so this has been, it's a great read to, to thumb through. It's been a long time since, uh, since Lucasfilm has put out a making of, yeah. especially for any of the recent movies. Yeah. And yeah, it is really exciting that the studio got behind this idea and really supported it. Okay. And, and, you know, let me really tell the story of what it was like to get to sit in some of those meetings early on and all the way through the whole process. It was really fun. Well, I mean, speaking of making of Star Wars books, one of the things I loved, and you've talked about it before in interviews, is the inspiration that you had from a making of Star Wars book, right? Which is one of my favorite of all time, The Once Upon a Galaxy. Yes. Yeah, looking at those photos, especially where Dennis Muren is setting up the camera and shooting some of those original AT-AT shots. And I just remember the shots of John and, and Phil Tippett popping out of those uh, trap doors next to those AT-ATs was a game changer for me growing up and realizing how the magic was happening and how the illusions were being made. You know, that one that one photo tells a whole story. You get the scale, you get an idea how much work it was right. to frame by frame, have to move the snow to back and forth to be able to pose those AT-ATs. And um, yeah, that photo really inspired me for my whole career. And then realizing as I was standing on the set of Solo, I'm like, these moments are happening around me for the next generation of right. filmmakers who are going to be inspired by some of this. I'm like, I got to put this into a book and share it with people. I love it. I'm so glad you did because some of them are are crazy. Like the, a lot of them have been previewed and people, of course, are hopefully picking up the book. But every page, I was like, oh my God, like there's the, the shot of, I guess, Junus on the set as Chewbacca like texting. And I was like, this is, <laughs> I'd yes. buy a whole book of just <laughs> Chewbacca texting. Yeah, that top to bottom, he's uh, he's in that, you can tell he was only seen from like the knees up in the shots because he still has his, uh, he's got like comfortable sandals on uh -huh. and he's just, you know, on the set of the Millennium Falcon, uh, checking his email, 
right. Smelling a Peter Cushing and just wearing some comfortable shoes. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Good. Well, I, let's go back. Um, you mentioned being inspired and you mentioned kind of your start in, in VFX. What was kind of that first step in the process and how did you get started? Uh, for me, I actually got an internship at um, right out of my high school. This would have been, I was in 12th grade, uh, senior in high school, and there was a company where I grew up down in Southern California that was doing cable TV spots, but they were using pretty sophisticated computers. At the time, I think the computer itself cost like $50,000, and the software was another $30,000, so to get time on one of these boxes was a big deal. And um, I told the guy who owned the place, he, he came into where I was working. I was working at a computer store. I said, I need to do an internship. I'm working. Uh, I'll work for you for free if I could just like spend some nights working on those right. computers, learning how they work. And he's like, let's talk. And uh, he <laughs> hired me. I ended up working there for 10 years. Wow. This little company called Vision Art Design uh -huh. and Animation. And um, I learned everything from, you know, how polygons are put together and how textures are put on geometry uh -huh. and some pr more programming. I had had a pretty technical background, so I was doing a lot of programming there. And um, it wasn't until 10 years later that I ended up at Sony Pictures. I, at that first company, at Vision Art, uh, we worked on Independence Day. That was our first giant yeah. feature film. Did a bunch of work in Independence Day. So those were, you know, I went from car, automotive, uh, like flying logos mm -hmm. to Independence Day <laughs> over those 10 years. Really learned a lot. And it was amazing. A little White crazy. House, you know. Yes, exactly. I actually got to, I didn't, I didn't actually get to help with the blowing up the White House shot. Right. I would have loved to. Um, but I did get to blow up the alien mothership. There you go. So in, in the, effect, I saved the, the world. Mac, the Mac software worked, right? <laughs> yes. It, it interfaced with the alien spaceship somehow. Just fine. Right. Yeah, sure. no, no problem. They, everybody uses the same wireless networks. Right. Don't yeah, worry. That makes sense. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, going then from, from Sony, you joined ILM in 2014. Yes, about five years ago. Um, and then what was that? What were you first working on at Industrial Light and Magic? Well, I remember my interview. I sat down with John Knoll over lunch, and uh, he's like, there's a lot of different things that people are thinking you might be able to do here, and there's different roles, and honestly, a lot of people wear a lot of hats, so talk to everybody, get a sense of what it is you want to do, and just, you know, let me know, and we'll see if there's any way we can carve that out. He's like, would you want a visual effects supervisor on a Star Wars film? And I'm like, Yes. Like, like, hey, sure, is there any fine. possibility that could actually right. happen? Yeah. W as soon as that became an option, I was super interested. My first week, I landed as a visual effects supervisor, and then John was totally right. I got drafted into all sorts of things. I mean, it's been an amazing five years. I got to help establish ILMX Lab right. with Vicky Dobbs Beck. I, I co-directed, well, I, no, I directed and co-wrote um, one of our first VR experiences called Trials on Tatooine right. that actually premiered here at Star Wars Celebration a few years ago mm -hmm. uh, when we were, where were we? We were in London for that. Mm -hmm. And um, and then as soon as this movie was getting up to speed solo, I started getting involved in the pre-production of yeah. that and, and handed some of those other managerial and tech and, and supervising duties off to other people right. uh, to be able to run that. And I got to get embedded on this show. I f flew to London and lived there for uh, over a year wow. doing the pre-production and shooting of this movie. That's so great. Uh, well, with ILMX Lab, the, especially the, the, uh, the Void experience. Yes because we we're from Dallas oh yeah so they brought it to, to Dallas and I've done it six times nice <laughs> it's just like it has ruined my life <laughs> uh, it is incredible we are showing some new ILMX lab stuff here yeah. at the show this year and we are making some new experiences that that really show how much we're learning from building those experiences yeah. they're really fun uh, to get immersed mm -hmm. in both in Star Wars and in these other worlds that we get to be a part of at Disney well let's let's talk about solo uh, I love solo and and not only solo as in terms of the story and the acting alden is incredible as as han but but the visual effects work that was done 
is not only just reminiscent of the originals, but it, it elevates this idea of the in-camera work and kind of bringing all these characters to life. What was the initial thinking behind that? Yeah, our movie is set in the time period that leads up to episode four. And the original premise for the visual effects was let's try to use the techniques that most relate to that time period. In fact, let's try to make the whole movie feel as if it was shot in the years leading up Mm -hmm. to, you know, 1976, Mm -hmm. right? So early 70s filmmaking techniques. Let's try not to do camera moves that you couldn't do before then. Let's try not Mm -hmm. to do any tricks so the audience actually feels like this movie could have actually been shot in 1970. So that it was almost like it was shot chronologically in the order that it appears. Also, like we all love those kind of techniques. Um, I think it tends to be more believable when you use a wide variety of techniques. I love using computer graphics. It's a fantastic tool and we have amazing artists at ILM who can bring that stuff to life in a way that you would never that's just incredible Um, and then when you also use other techniques that you wouldn't be expecting I think it keeps the audience guessing and hopefully you just kind of give up trying to figure out how it is being done and just enjoy being hopefully in awe of that part of the process and supporting the storytelling in the clearest possible way definitely and I mean definitely supporting the storytelling in the sense that for instance the projections right that adds an element to the actors and their ability to to make it a believable scene. What was that process like? Because seeing those just pictures is breathtaking, right? Like you're just like, I just want to go to the set and just see hyperspace. Absolutely. It makes shooting those scenes so much fun. Um, we uh, we wrapped the Millennium Falcon in a 180 degree wraparound cylindrical screen that required five projectors to project high resolution media onto that wall. And this was kind of building on some of the work we'd done recently. We In Rogue One, we used LEDs to light the cockpit shots. So we had LED lights that had media on them and you could see the effect of that we right. knew how great that was but then our goal was can we take it all the way can right. we have these over the shoulder shots captured in camera can we can it be what you see is what you get right. so we got high enough resolution projectors that made enough light to make this actually possible and built this whole configuration and i remember the first day i went and sat in the cockpit when the projectors they weren't quite calibrated yet but they were up and we could see how bright they were because we'd done all the math but yeah. we're like you never know until you actually do it yeah. and one of the photographs of me in the cockpit is shot just at that moment and i was so relieved yeah. That we were you have a nice little smile. You're just very <laughs> excited. <laughs> I was. I took that photo and then I ran across uh, the the Pinewood studio uh-huh. to the other end where we were shooting, and I showed it to Bradford, our DP, yeah. who's a fantastic collaborator. And I'm like, Bradford, I think there's enough light. I think it's going to work. And he's like, Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you brought up Bradford Young because yes. Solo is shot unlike really any other Star Wars movie in terms of how it looks and it's just so lush and, and beautiful. What was that process like working directly with him for the, the visual effects? Bradford is an amazing collaborator. I mean, he's an amazing artist, an incredibly talented DP. And then he is not possessive at all about department lines and I kind of like to act the same way and try to work across department lines and collaborate as much as possible. So he was just totally open to collaboration. So when the media could serve as his main light source he loved that and then he'd say like i need to have a stop brighter here i need to have a stop darker i need to add this this bounce card up there you know what do i need to do um or how can he work with the existing media to get the kind of lighting effect he's looking for on the actors so it was really fun to get to team up with bradford to get get this final result that was way better than if we had done it in post right Right. because you could actually see like in this one shot we start behind the actors and then hyperspace comes on sylvain who was camera operator she panned over to Alden's face and she saw that there was like hyperspace actually you could see it in his eyes and that in that shot it was supposed to be a moment of hope for the movie right. so you're actually we never would have thought to have made that shot right. right we never would have shot it that way had it had all the pieces not been there right live on set for us to capture I love it well I'd love to just take a second of your time and go through a few of my favorite effects oh, fun. from Solo maybe if you have a couple stories or first L3 
incredible, great, great character, but also just how it was brought to life. Yeah. What was that process like? Because a lot of people didn't realize both with L3 and with Rio, especially like how much of an onset presence it was. Yeah, it was really important for us, especially when you have an actress like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is so great as an improvisational actor and just has such a fantastic presence uh, to capture that as much as possible. So we could have just put her in a green suit and captured it that way, but we decided that it would be much better for the actors and also for us in the visual effects process to actually have her in as much of a practical suit as possible. Mm -hmm. So she wore the chest plate, she wore the helmet, she wore as much as she possibly could, including the exteriors of the legs and exteriors of the arms. And then digitally, we, of course, still had to erase Phoebe and do all the interior pieces, Um, sometimes even replacing some of the practical pieces if it didn't look quite right in a shot or anything. But basically, the suit that you see is half live action and half CG. um, And it requires very precise matching between those two. You can imagine how much work that was to do, but I think the result just makes you believe that she's really there. And she can, of course, fully interact with people. She walks in a different way because she's wearing this awkward suit suit that makes her feel really interesting for a droid. Definitely. It adds a sense of realism and weight to the character, which was just a nice... I love that right when we meet her, the first thing she does, Ron Howard's brother comes out of that cage and she like pushes him and like, and you're like, wait, it can't be CG then if she's pushing him around. think it does it increases the believability and hopefully just keeps you guessing like okay this must just be real because this looks real right but well i mean l3 thematically we can move now to the millennium falcon um millennium falcon everyone pretty much knows every inch of it right the people that are watching we saw millennium falcon that we had never seen before what was that process like not only designing a new millennium falcon but then the steps it takes to turn into the 1977 version yeah so james klein was our designer who led the design of that and Mm -hmm. we did a lot of iterations because what you really wanted to avoid was people going like why did you mess with that ship right the ship was perfect and it is perfect it's like one of the most famous ships in all of cinema history so you don't want to mess it up Uh, so we did a lot of iterations and james really settled on this one which had the the escape vehicle in the front and had basically this kind of flossed out shell of armor around like this could have been what the uh, you know what a what a Lando right. fancy YT thirteen hundred could have looked like, right. and um, I think I think he kind of hit it because people's reaction was exactly what we wanted, which was like, wait, it, it's new, but I you know, you can, but but you recognize right. the pieces, and then it was really fun. The artist at ILM piece by piece worked out how every single impact of an asteroid or the scraping along the Carbonberg or of course ejecting the escape vehicle um, started revealing piece by piece the Millennium Falcon that we know and love. I think we ended up having almost 30 models of the Millennium Falcon all the way through the Kessel Run to to degrade it and just beat the crap out of it from beginning to end. So there was a lot of love put into that Falcon. I love it. Now we just need 30 different versions of the toy. We do. And then I can just put it in. (laughs) You can have the whole transition from one end to the other. In fact, I think we have six stills of six different Falcons in the book on one page. Uh And you can kind of see a bit of the evolution where, you know, where it takes its damage and how we, how we beat the crap out of it. I love it. Well, hopefully Hasbro's listening and they'll just keep making Falcons. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you mentioned kind of Lando and how making things a little bit new and making it suit his personality. And one of the things I love, it's a super small detail, but it just is the Dejaric table and the two extra pieces. What was it like going to Phil Tippett, who you were just talking about, and saying, Phil, please make new Dejaric motions? I love Phil Tippett. He is, of course, one of the heroes in the industry. Right. And the funniest thing, Phil is um, super in- a super entertaining person to listen to and to learn from. And I remember the first meeting I had with him where I was showing him the sequence. And Phil says something like, um, it's like, I usually... Um, 
you know, to him, I'm just a kid. He goes, uh, I usually work, um, I usually work for the director in his movies. <laughs> and I'm realizing, I'm like, yep, Phil, you can talk, you can absolutely, I will set up a meeting with Ron Howard tomorrow. Do right. you want to tell me what the idea is too, or do you want to just pitch it to Ron? Because right. it can be yours either way, because right. it's Phil Tippett. Right, yeah. And then he realized that I wasn't going to get in his way, and he ended up, like, we ended up really getting to collaborate well. Yeah. But that, that idea to, to reintroduce those two characters that Phil had made for the original Star Wars. Crazy. And George Lucas, really, moments before they were going to start shooting that scene, goes, ah, the way Phil tells it, he goes, George says, ah, yeah, too, too many characters. Just get, get rid of a couple of them. So Phil, Phil just picked his two, the two that he thought were most in the yeah. way, and took them off that table. And, of course, for this movie, this was Phil's pitch. You know, hey, the table's brand new, so let's just add them back in. And then at the moment where the Wookiee hits the table real hard, we can short them out, and they'll be gone for the rest of time. And uh, Crazy. that's what we did. And I think a few people probably noticed. You yeah. had to really pay attention right. to pick up on those details. Oh, but my they're goodness. there. Crazy. And then it's the news. It's stop motion. And it's just because they didn't force awakens. And it was just like a nice Tippet Studios, more work. This is great. Just keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. They love doing it. And we love getting to work with them to do it. And, it, you know, as as you know, it's a frame by frame process. It's right. very painstaking. And um, but they, they do it super well. And the characters were already there. Do you know how it's evolved since like 1977 to now using the same characters? What has has it gotten easier for them? <laughs> Well, um, some of the processes are exactly the same. Yeah. It's still frame by frame. It's still just as much labor in terms of posing the characters and animating them. The things that have gotten better is the computer controls for the digital cameras are pretty great. Uh, it's a little easier to A-B between your last frame, so you can actually check your animation a little easier and watch the run-up. So if you come in the next morning, you're like, what, what was I doing with this character's arm? You can just watch it right. rather than having to wait for film and see if you did it all right, right. or take, take detailed notes. So there's some of the some of the ways that digital has helped stop motion, right. but in general, it's still the same painstaking yeah. uh, process. And, and we did a block through to make sure we loved the ideas, because right. you, uh, which they do roughly and as fast as possible. And then if we love the ideas, we go ahead and do the frame by frame, right. you know, painstaking thing that takes two or three days per shot. Yeah, I'm still waiting because they they released models of like full size versions. I'm waiting on like the actual bendable, you know, like. They just need to give that. To, to I've got uh, castings of a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're not they're not the poseable right, armatures, right. but I've got a couple of castings of a couple of them in my office, which oh, right. uh, are prized possessions yes, for sure. Definitely. Um, is any effect stick out to you that you're the most proud of, or that really kind of hit home what you guys were doing for Solo? I really like the train high sequence. I think it came together nicely, and it it, it had to do a lot of things story wise for the film. And I think we found a, a good balancing act to do that. Um, probably my say my favorite single effect is the Quaxium explosion mm-hmm. at the end of that sequence. The line in the script says that line that all visual effects supervisors tremble at when you read, which said, uh, an explosion like one we've never seen before. I'm like, oh man, because Star Wars has nothing but great explosions. And people like Jova Skosel, who did the explosions in all the original episodes, these are people that are legends in the industry. Um, So I'm like, how am I going to come up with a new explosion? So I was researching all sorts of things, and I came across uh, this reference on YouTube. Actually, the slow-mo guys did a little firecracker in a tiny aquarium, and they shot at high speed, so it it, it would, instead of being like over in one one hundredth of a second, it made this really beautiful explosion that made a little ball and then collapsed in on itself and the smoke went everywhere. And I looked at this reference and I'm like, now that could be our coaxium explosion. Uh. So I went and took a clip around everybody and was like pitching it to the director and, and uh, our producers and everyone's like, yeah, that could be cool. So we set up our own version of that uh, uh, with some lights and uh, an aquarium that wasn't much bigger than what you see yeah. there on YouTube and uh, shot it at 25,000 frames per second, a uh, bunch of different takes yeah. and got all that detail that we were looking for. So that, that explosion 
really adhered to our idea of trying to do things as practical as possible right. and tie to real elements. But of course, we're still leveraging the best digital technology because the artists at ILM had to crumble the whole mountain and do all the pyroclastic clouds and all the things that have to go into the final process. Yeah, and it turned out incredible. So it's really, It is a really fun moment. And uh, you know, Ron and, and the editorial team gave us enough time to really let that breathe right. in the cut. So we were, we were pretty happy with that there one. Is, you mentioned the train heist, and then there are the pictures of... The animals that they were riding that got cut. Which the, code, is the Kodiaks, the, yes. The biggest crime in Star Wars history. Because <laughs> I see these pictures and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we were trying to figure out, I mean, we, that, that train high sequence, I think at one point was like 15 minutes sure. long. And you're like, oh man, how long can an action sequence be? Right. There was this question like, are we being, it was fun to have this homage to a Western, right? And uh, there was a question like, are we aping the Western too much by having them ride Kodiaks <laughs> up to the side of the train right. and get on? Um, and when when we tried it with the ship when they flew in and, and rappelled down, we, we, we saw that and went, well, that, that, is, that does feel very Star Wars. And the right. Kodiaks feel a little, they're, they're more complicated, right. but it was a super fun scene. I mean, we shot the whole thing, yeah. and Alden and we'll Jonas. And, I'm sure. Right? Yeah, I, if Lucasfilm ever lets it out of the vault, we'll right. see. We'll yeah. see some rough versions of it. Honestly, we didn't take it that far. Um, it didn't ever get fully developed in visual effects. So we, mm -hmm. we worked through previs and everything and right. then had a version of it, and we certainly shot it all. Alden sound uh, <laughs> what did they <laughs> The Kodiaks. Yeah, Kodiaks, yes. Yeah, they, they sat, Alden sat on it, Jonas did, of course, um, Woody as well, everybody mm -hmm. did, yeah. played the whole scene out. It was one of the very first scenes we shot. Mm -hmm. We shot it before we officially started production because it was quite complicated. It required motion control. Mm -hmm. We had done helicopter plates for that valley. We'd done a lot of uh, careful prep work to be ready for it. That's crazy. Well, maybe next celebration, you guys just bring those models down, charge everyone like 20 bucks to <laughs> sit on sit it. sit on a Kodiak. control it, right? <laughs> exactly. Minutes, yeah. People uh, will love I'll it. I'll line up, yeah. <laughs> It's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I'm just full of, you know, the Millennium Falcon and Hasbro toys, you know, just full of them. So what I'd love to now talk about is the work that you're doing for the whole of ILM, right? And and one of the things that I've been super impressed with just over the course of you being the head of this is is this focus towards education and, and teaching new Phil Tippett's and Dennis Murin's you know, just skills and making it accessible for everybody. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, we have an amazing team of artists and some of the most experienced artists and uh, supervisors in the world. Mm -hmm. And that is truly in the DNA of ILM. It's a very, it's, it's an environment where everybody shares what they know. Right. And that's in part because there's just so much work to do that you need as many people to, ha to have as much information as possible. Right. So yeah, there is, it, it is a fantastic spirit of sharing and collaboration that everybody has at ILM. And yeah, we have a fantastic training department. We have classes every day. There's so many classes, it's almost right. hard to keep track of. And because artists are teaching other artists and everybody is really invested in this idea of sharing as much as possible. And the Academy Software Foundation, yes. just like teaching people kind of like what you learned for 10 years just on, on computers, but making it accessible for everyone is incredible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, ILM was one of the leaders in open source and has been for almost 20 years. So ILM open sourced an image format called OpenEXR, which is a very technical process, but it, it popularized high dynamic range photography that we need for our processes that we use at ILM. And now you can load OpenEXRs on a Mac, but just by hitting the space bar. Um, and that was made possible by open sourcing all that technology and giving it away to the world for free. And now we have the Academy Software Foundation that you were noting, which is a place that engineers can go or anybody who wants to participate in open source and you can find software and use it for free, or you can participate in the development of tools that we're using in production at ILM. So it's a great way for an engineer anywhere in the world who's interested in 
participating at this level. Uh-huh. And like, if you want to work on films, you can find a project that is being used on films at ILM and all the other studios around the world, right. and you can participate in that. And then who knows, you might even get hired by one of us because we're going to see your contributions <laughs> on the work and say like, oh, we need somebody who can do that. <laughs> yeah. where, where's this person? Where, where in our four studios around the world can we hire this person into easily? Right. So I guess as a whole for ILM, Looking maybe in the next year, the next five years, where do you want industrial light and magic to go? How do you want it to be perceived by the rest of the industry? Yeah, we're really focused in three main areas. Um, we are continuing to innovate in the film production process um, and continuing to grow the kind of films we can work on and the breadth of films that we take on and making sure we're finding the most creative and innovative films to be involved on. And then there's television, which is a new growing area for ILM. We just started our TV division, restarted a TV division. We had a commercials division a long time ago, but this year we started a TV division to work in television and streaming. Mm-hmm. So episodic work, and that's really taken off. And as you know, uh, we have new shows shows like The Mandalorian that are episodic and we really wanted to play a role on those films so we're excited about that and the last thing is in real time and immersive so you'll see some stuff here at the show from ILMX Lab and we're starting to see a bet we started making more than five years ago about um, the way real time was going to change not just the workflow of making films but the kind of things we can make we're really starting to see that kind of crossover so we're using more and more real time tools Mm -hmm. uh, like what we did on Solo but even taken to the next step in terms of how real time can change the way we shoot films on set so the immersive stuff that you can try at the void and experience firsthand in that way it also feeds back into the film production process i love it i remember seeing something a while back where it was like someone on a mocap stage and then immediately was just ready to ship the c3po i believe motion capture which was incredible absolutely yeah that was probably about four or five years ago and that was our advanced development group which is still working every day uh, putting together these prototypes of demonstrating what the future can look like and today we're leveraging that technology on set on productions that we're working on and can't yet even talk about in detail Um, in fact you'll probably even see some glimpses you know right coming up here of some of the new ways that we're putting stuff on the screen and it's it's really exciting to be a part of those processes love it well um tell everyone where they can get the book and yeah you can follow uh if you want you can follow me on twitter it's r bredo um and i've got links to the book there but you can find it on amazon just look for making solo a star wars story and it pops right up and uh yeah it's really fun i've been been getting tweets from people who are telling me hey your book is number one in the uk and uh in cinematography or in different in different categories right now so people are really i think excited about the book coming out i I mean it is hopefully the people listening know how picky i am about making star wars books and when i say this book was just an incredible read just in the past hour that I just kind of sat out there and, and powered through, but it's going to be something I return to very often. So, Mr. Bredo, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. It's really fun to get to do this. Yeah. Thank you again to Mr. Bredo for kicking off the convention by sitting down and answering all of my burning questions about hyperspace. Follow him on Twitter at rbredo, which is at R-B-R-E-D-O-W, and make sure to pick up a copy of Industrial Light and Magic Presents Making Solo a Star Wars Story. I've included links in the show notes to both. And a huge thank you to Abrams Books, especially Maya Bradford, for helping coordinate this interview. We are back from celebration and have a lot of great interviews from the show coming up. I cannot believe who we got to talk to. Next week is our conversation with Lorne Peterson. I know, I can't believe it either, so stay tuned. Leave a five-star review, and may the Force be with you.